If you ask a member of this generation two simple questions, how do you want the world to be in 50 years, and what do you want your life to be like in five years, the answers are quite often preceded by, provided there is still a world, and provided I am still alive. In George Wald's words, what we are up against is a generation that is by no means sure that it has a future. For the future, as Steven Spender puts it, is like a time bomb buried, but ticking away in the present. To the often heard question, who are they, this new generation, one is tempted to answer, those who hear the ticking. And to the other question, who are they who utterly deny them, the answer may well be, those who do not know, or refuse to face, things as they really are. You are listening to a podcast created as a final project for Columbia University core curriculum class, Contemporary Civilization. In this podcast, we will discuss the end of the world, or more accurately, the twin existential threats of climate catastrophe and a nuclear winter. For this discussion, we will draw from Hannah Arendt's essay on violence, from which you already heard a quote, and an essay by Dipesh Chakarabardi, The Climate of History, Four Theses. For more information about both authors, see the description box below. Hi, Martin. Hi, Lisa. I think we should start from the beginning. Anna Arendt criticizes the consensus we have about violence. We assume, she says, that violence is the extreme end, a manifestation of power. In reality, she argues, violence is its own thing. She goes on to define violence as the opposite of power. Yeah, and she does this in part by distinguishing power, strength, force, authority, and violence. So very quickly, power corresponds, she says, to the human ability not just to act, but to act in concert. So power is never the property of an individual. It belongs to a group and remains in existence only so long as the group keeps together. Hmm. So when we say of somebody that he is in power, we actually refer to his being empowered by a certain number of people to act in their name. Strength, she says, unequivocally designates something in the singular, an individual entity. It is the property inherent in an object or person and belongs to its character, which may prove itself in relation to other things or persons, but is essentially independent of them. Force, she says, should be reserved in terminological language for the, for example, forces of nature or forces of circumstance, la force des choses, that is, to indicate the energy released by physical or social movements. Authority, she says, can be vested in persons. There is such a thing as personal authority, as, for instance, in the relation between parent and child or teacher and pupil. Mm. Or it can be vested in offices, as, for instance, in the Roman Senate or in the hierarchical offices of the church. Right. So a priest can grant valid absolution, even though he's drunk. Its hallmark is unquestioning recognition by those who are asked to obey. So neither coercion nor persuasion is needed. And violence, finally, she says, is distinguished by its instrumental character. Phenomenologically, it is close to strength, uh, since the implements of violence, like all other tools, are designed and used for the purpose of multiplying natural strength until, in the last stage of their development, they can substitute for it. Okay, but let's go back to her opening. She opens with the idea that violence has become obsolete as the final tool of international disputes. And no one seems to have noticed, she says, the technical development of the implements of violence has now reached the point where no political goal could conceivably correspond to their disruptive potential or 
justifies are actually used in armed conflict. Hence, warfare, she says, has lost much of its effectiveness and nearly all its glamour. She is basically arguing that war makes no sense anymore. Not that it did in the past, but in a sense, a war in the past meant the winning side would accomplish some set of goals and get what they were fighting for, of course, paying the price of soldiers, ammunition, some distraction, etc. Today, NRN says, we're reaching a point with a nuclear bomb that wars, and I quote, if either wins, it is the end of both. This is a game that bears no resemblance to whatever war games preceded it. Its rational goal is deterrence, not victory. And the arms race, no longer a preparation for war, can now be justified only on the grounds that more and more deterrence is the best guarantee of peace. To the question, how shall we ever be able to extricate ourselves from the obvious insanity of this position, there is no answer. So unless you've been living under a rock in the past two months, this sounds a lot like what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the horrific war taking place as we speak in Europe. Well, as Hannah Arendt put it, it is not rational. So whatever goals Putin has or thinks he has, this war can hardly reasonably accomplish them. So Putin has said many times that he wants Ukraine to be part of Russia, that Ukraine's not really its own country, that he wants the Ukrainian people and you know the Ukrainian territory to all be Russian. Um, but the means that he has to exact war on Ukraine are so great that he's leveling entire cities, that he's destroying entire cities' populations. And there's in no rational universe is that can that reasonably be said to be accomplishing his goals? So uh, the means that he has for war exceed any rational goal. Well, there have also been discussions in the media about the fear of Putin using nuclear weapons as a final resort of this war. This goes back to Arendt's argument about technology. The fact that technology is inherently connected with the violence because it reflects the scale of the violence. This is the defining aspect of how violence will be manifested. Technology will determine what happens and not human consciousness because we as humans are way less predictable. Another reason I would say the Putin-Ukraine war seems connected um, is this distinction that Arendt makes between power and violence and how they're opposites and how people or groups in power always resort to violence when they feel their power start to slip. So, for example, in this case, Russia's economy, you know, or their political standing in the world was rapidly decreasing, um, especially when you consider sort of where the Soviet Union was just a few decades ago. And you'll notice, for example, that other countries that we think are threats to attack or to, to invade, you know, neighboring countries or enemies like China or like Iran, even in North Korea, haven't invaded anyone. And I would say that this is because their power is on the rise and Russia's um, isn't. And. The trap, uh, Arendt would say, is mm. that this violence is never restorative of power in the way that its users seek it to be. So it's sort of Marx's thing about, you know, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. So uh, Putin uh, attempting to sort of tighten his grip on power using violence makes it sort of slip away even faster. But going back to what she said about technology, the Russia thing reminds us that war is obsolete, but we don't seem to have realized that. We have such great means of destruction that it no longer serves our goals. Um, whether it's the fighting currently going on in Ukraine or the threat of nuclear bomb, we have created technology whose effects we can no longer control, but we are deluded 
that that we can. Yeah, and and even more than that, I think Hannah Arendt talks about this sort of ticking that this generation hears, the the shadow Mm -hmm. of nuclear destruction. And today, you know, reading that, another shadow comes to mind, you know, the shadow of climate change. Mm -hmm. She says that to be alive today is to ask if we'll even have a future and to hear the ticking. Um, And I think this is even more pertinent today. Climate change, you know, hangs over all of us as a potential, you know, runaway train that could lead to human extinction. And in the same way that Arendt says we don't have control over the looming threat of nuclear war, I think that today we would say that we do not have control or we are losing control over the escalating effects of climate change. That brings us back to Chakrabarti, which is directly linked to the idea of this cloud that hangs over us. He talks mainly about how human history and natural history have started to converge and that we are starting to understand, at least logically, not necessarily intuitively, that we are entered an age of humans as geological agents. That has become known as the Anthropocene. And he writes, to call human beings geological agents is to scale up our imagination of the human. Humans are biological agents, both collectively and as individuals. They have always been so. But we can become geological agents only historically and collectively. That is, when we have reached numbers and invented technologies that are on a scale large enough to have an impact on the planet itself. To call ourselves geological agents is to attribute a force on the same scale as that released at other times when there has been a mass extinction of species. Hmm. So to some extent... All of human history, we've been trying to master our environment one way or another, but nature was still the one to call the shots, and we had to oblige. At some point, without realizing that the role has changed, and we became the masters. Only it is the illusion of control or power. In fact, we are losing control every day that passes, and we keep trying to maintain control or tighten our grip, in a sense, by using violence toward our planet. We are in fact losing that power, and therefore losing control. He writes, The anxiety global warming gives rise to is reminiscent of the day when many feared a global nuclear war. But there is a very important difference. A nuclear war would have been a conscious decision on the part of the power that be. Climate change is an unintended consequence of human action and shows, only through scientific analysis, the effect of our actions as a species. It is interesting that Chakrabarti distinguishes between nuclear war and climate change. He says that we have control over nuclear bombs, but we already lost control over the climate. Arendt would argue exactly the opposite. She says that the moment we invented the nuclear bomb, we are awaiting for it to explode. Yeah, and you know, in fact, the the Robert Oppenheimer, the inventor of you know the nuclear bomb, the head of the Manhattan Project uh, in the forties, when he saw the nuclear bomb detonate uh, for the first time and you know uh, the successful test, a quote came to his mind that goes, "Now I am become death." destroyer of worlds, right? So even he, when he saw it for the first time, understood to what extent he was potentially responsible for sort of the end of humanity. So we don't have control at all. And this is why we choose violence both with the climate and the nuclear threats? I think that if we were to assume at the most fundamental level that we don't have control, we would act differently. 
I think that we would stop everything and, you know, fix the climate. I think that we would dismantle all the nukes. Um, and I think we would restore power to ourselves by eliminating these, you know, swords of Damocles, these things hanging over us um, and assume the power that we have and recognize the power that we don't. Or as Hannah Arendt says, we could use violence to knowingly or not end it all. As she says, that as soon as power starts to slip, people use violence thinking they can hold on. But this is a means through which they will never gain power again. It's a happy thought. <laughs> so to bring it back to Arendt's question about how do we want the world to look like in 50 years? Well, I think that the first step to fixing any problem is admitting there is one on both fronts. I think if we together truly come together to understand how powerless we are in the face of both of these forces, you know, climate change and nuclear war, I think we might start acting without this hubris that sort of clouds our judgment and lulls us into this kind of complacency that we see today. Mm. I think in the case of nukes, I think we think we're in total control since it's man-made. Arendt says this is obviously ridiculous, and I think I agree. It's very much unpredictable what would happen in a nuclear war, and thinking otherwise, I think, is the first and most critical mistake that we make. And in the same way, I think with climate change, our illusion of control comes in the form of the time that we think we have. I think, you know, a lot of people think, you know, we'll be fine. We have time. Uh, you know, we'll make some adjustments along the way. Um, getting real about what we can control, you know, disarmament or very aggressive climate change policy and what we can't control, you know, whether it's the effects of a nuclear war or the effects of climate change, I think that that would allow us to solve these problems is understanding, you know, what we can't control. Well, on that note, thank you for listening to this podcast about the end of the world through the writing of Hannah Arendt and Dipesh Chakrabarty. I was Alisa Shadiyaf-Kaf, and I want to thank my husband, Martin, for helping me create this podcast. Enjoy the taking. <laughs>